Welcome to They Live By Film, a platform dedicated to bringing you film discussion and interviews from around the world. I'm Adam Lundy, joined as always with my co-hosts, Chris Haskell and Zach Bryant. Hello, gentlemen. Bonjour. Hello, hello. How are you, Chris? You've been on your travels again. Oh, so good. So good. I, I watched, uh, uh, kind of rewatched elements of one of the movies we're going to be talking about today in Paris. Uh, hoping that I would understand it better, um, <laughs> uh, but it was fun. We did we did planes, trains. Uh, we didn't do automobiles this time. Yeah, we did. We did a lift. So we did planes, trains, and automobiles um, throughout Europe with a five year old, and it was actually pretty good. It was fun. He had a blast, and um, it was uh, it's fun to see Europe through his eyes. Uh, we got to see Amsterdam and Paris. Um, I wouldn't say it was a relaxing trip, but it was super fun just to kind of. You know, I don't know. Have him you went ride. to Amsterdam and it wasn't relaxing. Then you did Amsterdam wrong. <laughs> <laughs> they don't talk about Amsterdam with the kid. That's a different experience. <laughs> Dad, why does it smell funny around here? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so I'll tell you all one kind of funny story. We were trying to find a pancake place, and we we went there, and he loved it. So we went back the next day, and every time we walked past some place, I'm I'm gonna forget the name. But it was basically like, like some triple X store, and it was just <laughs> X toys in the window, like <laughs> brightly colored, like pink and purple and blue, like wands and dildos and everything. And so we were kind of like just rug pushing him through, like. Don't get the <laughs> uh, yeah, they ain't they ain't subtle. Um, no, but I mean, it's, you know, our fault for taking him to the red light district. They just had good pancakes there, so we'll travel anywhere for good pancakes. You know, I, I find that is a real thing because uh, when I uh, when I was in when I went to West Virginia to go gamble, there there's a strip club there. I went there for a bachelor party, and it was amazing that they sell breakfast in the morning if you're there long enough. Which is so weird to me because in <laughs> Virginia we can't sell alcohol after two uh, two a.m. So in uh, West Virginia that doesn't apply, and they just like oh, if you stay here long enough, you can have a breakfast bar. <laughs> yeah, I remember that was in a it was in an episode of Parks and Recreation. Uh, where Tom got divorced and they brought him to his trip club and Ron Swanson just there for the breakfast buffet. <laughs> oh, cool. yeah. yeah. <laughs> and all the glitter goes off and he's like trying to protect his breakfast from the glitter. <laughs> uh, I suppose we better talk about some movies. Um, so we're, this is an, an interesting episode that we're going to do. Um, obviously, we've been doing a few now for the last few weeks we've been doing episodes that are sort of thematically connected this is probably the most connected set of films we've done because it's it's part of a uh we say a trilogy but it's one of those art housey trilogies where you can watch any film at any one time and it doesn't actually matter uh european directors love these kind of trilogies or at least uh-huh. companies like to sell them as trilogies um whether the filmmaker intended them to be that or not um, so we have the Orphic Trilogy, which is by the renowned director, artist, poet, provocateur, uh, Jean Cocteau uh, from, from France. So we're going to be talking about the three main films of the Orphic Trilogy, uh, and we're going to probably touch on a fourth sort of short film as well. Um, so the three we're going to talk about is uh, The Blood of the Poet, so Le Song d'un Poet from 1933, uh, Orpheus or Orphe uh, from 1950 and Testament of Orpheus or Le Testament d'Orphe uh, from 1960. Uh, we will also probably touch on a short film, uh, La Villa Santo Sospere, 
which was from 1952. So just kind of in between Orfe and, and the Testament Orfe. So we're going to talk through these, you know, chronologically, we're going to still play this like a normal episode. Um, with these being thematically linked, we probably end up we'll, we'll jumping sort of back and forth a little bit. So uh, it's going to work a little bit differently. We're not going to have a break for collection corner in the middle of films like, like we normally would. So strap in everyone for uh, for this discussion. So obviously we're, we're going to start with The Blood of a Poet. Uh, this is a shorter film. I think it's the shortest of the three at 50 odd minutes. Um, very much a surrealist film. Obviously there's no real point in telling you the little synopsis like we normally do at the start of this film. Sure. Essentially, Actually, I don't know. <laughs> I was going to try and make up my own little snuff, so I don't really know what to say. Um, it's, it's, a, it's a surrealistic and artistic look at the artistic process, uh, I assume. That was, that's what I took away from it anyway. Um, I believe it. Yeah, but the best person to speak about this really is going to be Chris. Chris, this was your choice. You're the one who brought these films to us. So yeah. Do you want to speak a little bit as to why maybe you chose these films and what your initial thoughts of Blood of the Poet? Yeah, so um, I loved the aesthetics of Beauty and the Beast. Uh, he did, he did a, you know, I, I assume that everyone knows, but just in case they don't, he did a version of Beauty and the Beast in 1946, which is one of the more creative films. And, and the thing that really jumped out to me there was what he was able to do with practical effects uh, and staging. I mean, basically, you know, he's, there's so many times where they just use a black curtain with an arm, like through a black curtain to represent a lamp and it moves. So it feels like the Disney's Beauty and the Beast in a way, but it's, it's obviously, you know, it's more simple. Um, but I was just really struck by, by the way that he set the stage and the framing and the, and the way that he used practical effects. And so I was intrigued to see more of his stuff. Um, and I, I hadn't yet. Um, obviously, this has been sitting on my shelf. I've had the out-of-print Criterion DVD for years now, um, and I just couldn't quite, you know, commit to it. So I felt like this was time. Uh, I've been going through, I just so happened to see Fellini's films last year and Jodorowsky's films last year, which wasn't planned, but it actually was great to kind of see them in the same year because I, I took a deep dive into surrealist, some surrealist filmmakers. And I, I found out that I really loved it. So it made me more excited to see these. Um, uh, so that's the background as to why um, uh, I'll just, you know, I think one of the things I realized after watching Testament is that all three of these are basically, well, especially Blood and Testament, but maybe even Orpheus a little bit, but these are very personal films for John Cocteau. So I think uh, Testament, obviously more so because he stars in it, but I mean, Blood of a Poet, I believe is a very personal film for him. And so I think, you know, we're really meant to follow the mouth throughout. We'll, we'll talk more about this, but you know, the idea that the artist creates something that then takes him on this journey. And then it's, it's a, it's, it's a poem. It's a sort of like a visual poem, right? Um, the world puts this at 1255. As, 12, the 1,255th uh, best time, our best film. And uh, to me, I, I love, so I can't wait to hear what y'all say. I loved it. Like I watched it twice. Um, uh, I thought it was similar to Beauty and the Beast. I, I, I thought it was so creative how he played with 
film technique and and basically like I don't even know how he did it but like layering film on top of each other I guess but the way that he sort of played to get the mouth to show up in the different uh elements throughout the throughout the story as we go um it's like a I'm glad it wasn't in two hours I think 50 minutes was perfect um and um I it, it was just sort of this almost like this experiment in uh, in how to play with visual effects so I loved it what, what did y'all think Chris, if um, you just wanted to tell me I was stupid, you didn't have to make me watch four hours of movies. It would have been easier. <laughs> um, I, I, I can see where Zach's coming from, and I'm, I'm probably going to lean more with what Zach is going to think because I've already read his letterbox thoughts on this film. And I, <laughs> I, I audibly laughed when I read them because I'm like, this asshole just wrote exactly what I was going to say. Um, <laughs> Um, and now it's going to look like I stole from him. Um, so I have a tough time with this kind of surrealism. Um, I just, I, I appreciate it sometimes a lot more than I end up liking it. And my appreciation often doesn't stem from appreciating what the artist is trying to show us, but more how they're showing it. Uh, and I mean that from a practical point of view, as in, you know, the effects or the artistry, the costuming, makeup, all that kind of stuff. I always hone in on the practical aspects rather than, oh, wow, Cocteau is trying to say this by showing us this. I just, a lot of it just goes over my head. Um, and this is, is another situation like that. Um, I, I like surrealism, but for me, surrealism needs to be grounded in an actual narrative for me to get anything out of it. Um, which is uh, why Zach mentioned David Lynch. Um, and that's exactly why I like David Lynch because I think he, he holds the line well between actually having an artist structure, but while also being very surreal. And yeah. I'm sure David Lynch is probably a fan of these films based on some of the things that we've seen in them. Um, and it's why I, I actually, you know, generally like Dorpheus um, a lot more than the other two bookended pictures yeah. because it had an actual narrative. Uh, but yeah, I, I had a tough time with The Blood of a Poet. Um, it's one of those films where I can appreciate how it was made, but I don't really, I don't really get, I just don't get it. You know, I, it's probably one of those things where, like you said, you watched it twice. Maybe I'd have to watch it a few times to try and get the under, sort of the, the you know, the underlying themes or whatever. But like, there's kind of one theme that I've picked up from all of these films and I'm starting to think that Jean Cocteau is really insufferable um, <laughs> because the only theme I'm kind of picking up here is that how he thinks artists and poets are like the cream of the crop of humanity and how they're more important than everybody else. And I just find that very self-serving. Um, I think it's picked up a lot more in Orpheus and in Testament. I don't think it's as prevalent here, but yeah, the underlying theme I'm getting from these films is that uh, Jean Cocteau thinks that like he's like fucking awesome and all poets and writers and artists are amazing people and fuck everyone else but yeah i don't know just really quick because i don't mean to interrupt but i just want to comment on that I, let's revisit that comment in testament because he apologizes for that um but um yeah you the, it he had not reached a state of humility yet <laughs> in this one <laughs> i agree uh, just to go back to the kind of a Lynch thing and what 
And where this stuff kind of loses me generally, because I had the same problems at what was the Maribad? Is that was that the one we watched? Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Yeah. Well, Maribad, yeah. Yeah. And it's there. I think what I like about Lynch, what you make make a great point out about the groundedness, but there's also this feeling that it's supposed to be interactive for me. Like I'm supposed to put something into this. I am supposed to figure out my own meaning for it. You know, if I watch Mahalan Drive, you know, I can sit here and make something based on my own experiences or, or anything else. But when it comes to things like this, I feel like there is an answer. And if I'm not smart enough to get it or I didn't have the same experiences, I'm not a French artist guy. I'm never going to understand it. And it may it really like builds this wall for me. Yeah. Yeah. Like I can't ever over overcome that hurdle. And, it, you know probably the furthest in surrealism I can go uh, for me is something like Hour of the Wolf by Bergman, which I don't understand that movie either, but I'm engaged the entire time I watch that movie. Like, I feel like there's a hook with those that I have such a hard time with when it comes to this, where I'm just kind of thinking and watching, like, what the hell's going on? Like, and Blood of the Poets probably the worst for that, because I just, like, I, I, had, I watched the whole thing, and I was like, I, I have no idea what's going on. <laughs> like, I know there's there's, like, something to do with like the mouth and but that kind of goes away like halfway through and then the other two have a lot less to do with that so i'm not really sure what the connection is supposed to be <laughs> but you know that's that's for me where i have a hard time it's a good point that you bring up about being able to um relate to it in some way um or, or well not being able to relate to this probably better way of putting it because for a surrealist film it feels very oddly autobiographical which is really weird to say about a very surreal film yeah it feels like you know Cocteau is talking about directly his own experiences which it absolutely does make it very hard to relate um to that like you know the I think it's the second second or third part where that snowball fight happens yeah you know that feels like something that probably happened in Cocteau's childhood that he made it that he kind of brought into the film um, it reminded me a lot of, I don't know if you guys have seen Zero the Conduit um, by... Um, I, I actually want to see that. I haven't yet, but yeah. that's on the list. I can't remember the dude's name. Uh, Jean Vigo, who did uh, Last Night. Yeah. Um, it kind of reminded me of that a little. That's, obviously, that's not a surrealist film. That's very much a film just kind of talking about childhood in a sort of boarding house. Um, and this kind of feels like the opposite end of that spectrum where, where I, almost, I almost said Goddard, where Cocteau... Uh, was sort of taking aspects of his own personal life and experience and just kind of making it as artful and abstract as he possibly could to kind of not just convey events, but convey how he feels about events and the events themselves into one picture, if that makes sense. So he's taking the abstractness of feelings and thoughts and emotions and merging them with the actual physical reality of, of what happened is that is that making does that make sense where i'm coming from yeah yeah i think i'm uh, yeah i'm getting what you're saying yeah i mean he so imagine like uh, this is not me trying to defend it i think y'all are, are right by the way so i i um uh i don't think he's making these films to be liked if that makes sense. Like, I think he's making these films. Just imagine that art scene at that time. It was him and Luis Bunuel and I'm sure a bunch of others, right? Bunuel made, uh, I'm, I don't know how to say this in French, but it's Lage d'Or. Like, it's like- Yeah, Lage d'Or. Lage d'Or? Okay. Lage d'Or, I think, yeah. 
So that's an extremely experimental film, right? And then Cocteau makes this one, which is a very experimental film. And like, I'm sure there was a lot of drugs involved. And like, you know, it's just, there's this whole scene in, in France in that time where people are kind of pushing the limits of what you do with film. Uh, and I think they're making it for themselves. I, I, I really do. I, I think y'all are onto something. Um, I don't know what it is. I've always liked, like, I like the artist, even when I was in high school, I think, or maybe college, I like the, the art of like John Michael Basquiat or John Michel Basquiat, I don't know how to say his first name. And then like Warhol, like I've always just kind of been drawn to this um, Gustav Klimt who just, you know, like kind of paints and like, it's, I don't know, sort of shapes and uh, almost like puts like squares a lot into a lot of his paintings and it's kind of hard. Like, it's like a distorted image of what he's trying to create. I've always been drawn to this. So I think it's something is just in my brain that's off um, where I don't, I would never say that I get it. Like if you asked me what this movie's about, um, I, I couldn't tell you. <laughs> like, you know, it's four parts and in the four parts you see they're, they're like loosely connected, right? Through this idea of like the, the thing that the artist creates, right? Because it starts off with him painting and then he paints the lips and then the lips start moving and that freaks him out. So he wipes it off and then it transfers to his hand and then it transfers to his hand to a statue, right? And the statue comes alive and tells him to go through that portal. And then he enters like the, this, this sort of world, uh, this mirror world, which shows up in, in all of his movies, right? He's very uh, obsessed with mirrors. Um, I don't know if that's a reflection of just the idea of like looking back in maybe or what, I don't know, but he seems to be very obsessed with mirrors. And, and this theme comes up in all of his these movies around mirrors being a gateway into like, like hell essentially or death, right. Or, or the afterlife. And so I think if I were to guess there's something in this around, like, like looking back introspectively is a scary thing and can, and can lead to death. But um, I don't know. I, I, I really think that's know. interesting. Cause I kind of went the other way with that. Like yeah, I kind funny. of saw it as the only way we watch ourselves age is like literally in, in the mirror. Like, okay. yeah, like we were looking forward because everything we see is a slowly aging. Um, okay. So that's interesting. Yeah, yeah. That's, that, that, I, I'm probably wrong. I just thought that was uh, interesting. You went on the other direction for that. But I think I just thought it was narcissistic. So. <laughs> yeah, that, that works too. <laughs> it plays into the Greek theme as well, narcissists. So, yeah. yeah. Uh, they're probably <laughs> all true. He, he is, I would say, like, <clears throat> compared to Bunuel, Cocktail definitely strikes me as like um, a narcissist or, or more self, like, like he's very, he's very impressed with himself. Right. I would say that's true. And actually I don't want to jump around too much, but I didn't like Testament a lot for that reason. Um, uh, we'll get into that in a second, but I, I, I'm just, I think it's the same reason. I don't know if y'all have had a chance to listen to much of the interviews with Matt we did. And then with Dan, but one of the things that the last two interviews, but the theme that came up is both of them like Bunuel. And <clears throat> I'm noticing there's this connectedness between people that grow up in kind of like the punk world, um, the punk, the, the fringe art scenes and, and people that like surrealism. And I have no idea why, but I'm thinking it's possible. I've been trying to wrap my brain around this. Like why did out of Saturn's core, VHS Hitfest and Visual Vengeance, which are releasing regional shot on video films. Why did they all mention Bunuel as one of their favorites? Like that's, that's just interesting, right? Like, and so there's something that I've, I've been trying to figure this out as to why this keeps coming up. 
the best I can do is that there's you're comfortable if, if you grow up in that punk kind of like outsider world you're comfortable with things that are on the fringe and like it's just kind of where you live like I, I just kind of grew up living on that fringe and so for me like something like this is just it's fun like I, that's why I like it there's not really a deeper meaning there I just I enjoy the fact that he's experimenting and trying different things and it's almost like I'm not paying attention to the words he's using because it's kind of nonsense it's just phrases thrown together and you know so anyways it's I guess that's in a sense kind of like when you listen to music of a language you can't understand. Ooh, nice. Like, and then the, and the idea of just, yeah, you just, you, something about it, you just like, I think a lot of people have something on their phone they can't understand what any of the words are, but you yeah. just kind of like it, that sort of idea. Like Sugar Rose, I don't know if you guys are familiar with Sugar Rose, uh, or an Icelandic band, but they sing a lot of their language. They sing a lot of their songs in like a completely fake language called Hoplantic. Uh-huh. Uh, it's like completely made up. Um, but, you know, you could still, like when I listen to their, I, I'm a big fan of theirs. Um, it was like the first big sort of concert I ever went to. Oh, nice. um, and it was an amazing, amazing performance. They had a huge sort of backing band behind them. Um, but like when you listen to a lot of their songs, you have to pick up the meaning through how the music feels and yeah. how he, how he's singing as opposed yeah. to the words themselves because obviously they're just made up so um w- one thing i was kind of curious about now that you've sort of brought up the whole Buñuel versus cocteau and things like that um because there's just there's something about the two guys and i don't know because i know that you're a Buñuel fan and i know you've probably been reading about cocteau because i know how your brain works when we do these kind of episodes so i'm just wondering if you can maybe paint this for me socially speaking is cocteau from like a like a rich family was is he yes from a rich background yeah, yeah more yes well i don't know about wealthy but uh his his parents were artists I, i'm assuming they were had, were okay um yeah i always find that most like artists like artists artists like painters and sculptors and stuff they all come from money because you know most normal people can't afford to be just can't afford to be an artist basically yeah 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 and i mean somebody had to have funded this like yeah that's like that's fascinating to me that somebody paid money i'm assuming because they like his art and they were like yeah try some film but this is what i'm wondering because um like i actually i i I have no problem with one well i haven't seen large door but i've seen nunchen and lu which he did with salvador dali and i've seen obviously his some of his narrative films um and like, if I had to sit down and choose, would I prefer to watch a Bunuel film or a Cocteau film after, you know, watching, you know, a, a good few films from both artists, I'd be saying Bunuel as well. Um, and now that I'm kind of thinking about it and we've kind of been sort of talking about that, maybe it's because Bunuel kind of speaks more to the everyman. He's, he's the everyman's surrealist uh, versus Cocteau who's maybe the, the, you know, he's the art installation surrealist, the guy who can go right. and get a residency in a, you know, in a, in a, you know, in an art deep, you know, in a, in a museum. Whereas Bunuel is kind of like the everyman surrealist. I don't know if that's a good way of putting it. But that's kind of how I'm feeling. Yeah. Um, especially, I, mean, I suppose, a lot of Bunuel stuff is very anti-establishment and stuff as well. So, you know, that yeah, kind of Bun- plays into it. Bunuel came from money as well. The difference might be oh, okay. his dad, his dad, um, uh, he he watched his dad make the money like like they were kind of relatively just middle class or poor and then he had a business that was booming 
Cocteau, I forgot this is an important detail for him, but, but I still think you're right though, because he, he grew up in Cuba and, uh, and then Spain. So he saw a very different life than Cocteau who grew up in a rich Parisian family. I forgot this though, uh, Cocteau, uh, his dad died when he was nine from suicide. So I don't know that that necessarily plays in the blood of a poet, but I do think the fascination with death uh, is certainly probably personal, right? Well, um, and you know, at least with Blood of the Poet, um, the thing I kind of wrote was that I felt like it was almost the sense of, se- of hating yourself is kind of cool. Yeah. And it's yeah, like yeah. almost like the burden of being an artist. And it's like, mm-hmm. okay, sure. But I mean, I guess if his, you said his father was an artist, so I guess that's kind of ties into that idea that, you know, hating yourself is a part of the art process, yeah. which is weird because a lot of this feels, as Adam said, narcissistic at the same time. So, yeah, I, I, I believe I would believe if somebody told me that that art scene at that time in the 30s in Paris produced a lot of very uh, arrogant artists i would believe that i you know it's almost like imagine being in the writing room for lacar's de cinema when godard and like Truffaut and all those guys were writing about cinema they were probably very impressed with themselves right and then to be able to go from there to then go make films that were internationally acclaimed sort of like reinforce that and i feel like this was another one of those moments i think there's 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 a there's a part in orpheus that i think really sums up um the uh how that's the right word. Just how up their own arse uh, poets can get. Um, at there's a moment in Orpheus that I actually do want to speak about regarding that that I think kind of nails that on perfectly. Just well, we can move on to Orpheus, right? I think we've unless we have something else with blood of a poet. No, totally. Just real quick on that point, though, I did want to say that I think you know it's important to note or whatever that Bunuel was a filmmaker first who did other art, right? And Cocktail was a poet first who did a few films. So it's, uh, you know, I think this shows up the most, again, I don't want to spoil everything, but this shows up the most in Testament, which is a very poorly made film. Um, but I think he was able to kind of cover over it in, in early work through maybe working with better writers. I, I don't know. But, you know, some of his films are quite acclaimed, um, especially Beauty and the Beast. But he wasn't really like a filmmaker first. So that, that's another reason why Benoit might be jumping out is uh, better. I mean, he just... He just did it more. That was more his, you know, what he wanted to do, I guess. But anyway. It does make sense, though, when you, like, it's been, like, it's seen when people go into film from other walks and that kind of gets reflected in their film. Like, uh, I don't know if you guys have seen any of Tom Ford's films. Um, oh, you're talking about, like, Noc- is that the guy who did Nocturnal Animals? Yeah, Nocturnal Animals. Yeah, 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 I've seen this stuff. A, yeah, and I think it's A, a Single Man. Uh, yeah they're very very stylistic uh yeah. very sort of it, like you'd know he comes from fashion is, is the best way oh to yeah, like, yeah yeah um you'd know he comes from the fashion world because even though like nocturnal animals that is that is an anxiety attack of a movie and um, i genuinely <laughs> had a panic attack watching that film I, I i could never watch it again um good good film and yeah, you can, you can, but you can tell from his style, from the way he shoots his pictures, that he comes from that. So it, it, you can also see that with Cocteau, you know, how, how much he relies on experimental and frankly, very innovative and very creative 
um, editing, camera work, effects, and stuff like that, which we'll definitely talk about uh, with Orpheus. Um, are we okay to move into Orpheus? Any yeah. Last cool. points on sort of a thought? Okay. So, yeah, so we'll move on to Orpheus. So this Orpheus or Orphe, um, which is the French sort of version of it, um, from 1950. I had seen this one before. Um, I'd seen this on Testament before. I hadn't seen Global Report before. This was a rewatch for me. I watched it about two or three years ago. I have it on Blu-ray. Um, to give you this sort of basic rundown, it is. this is definitely the most plot, plotted or plot-heavy yeah. film out of this three. It essentially follows the the story, the sort of myth of Orpheus and Eurydice, um, but planted in sort of contemporary Paris. Um, so basically a poet follows his dead wife into the underworld only to fall in love with death. That's the kind of basic synopsis. There's a lot more to the film than that, I feel. Uh, that's a very basic synopsis. But yeah, it's, it's as the title implies, it is, it is Orpheus, um, but in contemporary Paris. Um, this definitely my favorite of the three um for reasons that i mentioned already because it has surrealism but it's planted in a clear narrative you know i have i, ha I know i know basically what happens in this film from a to a to z from beginning to end i know essentially what happens um which helps ground the surrealistic elements um, so that's that's how I feel about the film. Um, I like its noirish elements sometimes. Um, yeah, there's there's a lot more I think to like about Orpheus, and I think if you're not a fan of surrealism but you wanted to watch a film that kind of has surrealism, um, and you've watched all of David Lynch's films and you want something else, then I'd say give Orpheus a try. Um, what did you think of this one, Zach? I'll start with you this time. Um, I, I kind of have a lot of the same sentiments you do, but uh, the thing I, I, I did want to add, I guess, I guess this is just where this is, I guess, 18 years after Blood of a Poet. I really don't know. Like, I see the connections between Orpheus and Testament of Orpheus. I'm not 100% sure what the connection of why this is a trilogy. I'm Maybe it's that. not meant to be, but um, the thing, I guess, that this one seemed more interesting in this part of his life because he seemed to maybe care a little bit more about narrative since this is, what, like two years after Beauty and the Beast where you can uh, follow things. And at least I can understand what happens, what it means. I have no idea, but I, I understood, like, the events that happened. Yeah. Yeah. It, um, that... I agree. It seems like there is a period there. I didn't, I have not seen the Eagle with two heads or the parent, the terrible parents, um, uh, which are the no. two films between Beauty and the Beast and this, but they're all very highly rated. And, and I think especially the, the parent, the terrible parents seems to be uh, very highly rated for him. So this seems to be when he was maybe trying to be a filmmaker first. I don't know. He seemed to be fairly productive for a few years. Um, I, I, I agree with everything y'all say. The world agrees as well. So this is ranked as the 367th best film of all time. Oh, wow. I really didn't expect that high, but okay. <laughs> um, okay. Yeah. And I think, uh, yeah, I, I did a lot of talking in the first one. I can let y'all talk more. My, you know, this was, I, I did not like it as much as Blood of a Poet um, in terms of just sort of like enjoyment. 
but um, I rewatched it again as well, just because I was so fascinated with little things. Like, I think there's a lot of times when they're walking in the dream world where it's like a long sequence where they're walking sort of forward and we'll get into this in, in a second, but I, I believe the entire thing was shot in reverse. Yeah, there's a few moments like that. So I was like, what? Is that, was that all in reverse? Like, cause it's, it's quite long. Like sometimes they're like 30, 60 seconds longer. And so, uh, you know, I was just interested in that. Like, again, just from a technical perspective, um, I don't think, I, I'm seeing four of his movies now, five if we include the short we're gonna talk about, I don't think he's a good writer of film. I, I believe I he's, agree. yeah. I, I don't think the film is, is written in, incredibly well, uh, but I think this one is, like y'all said, it's, it's easier to follow. It's easier to kind of just sit back and watch and understand what's happening. Um, and then I think that allows the, the visual effects to, to play out more and to be more interesting. Yeah, I think we've probably seen all the same ones because I've seen obviously these four and Beauty and the Beast. Um, so I think we're probably in the same boat there from what I've seen. And yeah, I'd have to agree. Like, I can't walk away now after seeing five Cocteau films. I can't walk away and say he's a great filmmaker. He's a creative artist, but I can't walk away and say he's a great filmmaker. Yeah, because um, I feel like to be called a great filmmaker, you have to have the whole package. And he, he certainly doesn't um, have that in the writing department. And maybe that sounds harsh because, you know, someone who loves art could sit down and say, what are you talking about? You know, these themes are so intricately put through the film. How can you say he's a great writer when he's able to convey all this, you know, this and that theme? Um, but for me, he's not a great writer. Um, so that's that's how it works. Um if you want to know the man's thoughts himself, the, the man told, he literally told us what the themes are. If you're interested, I have them here in front of me. Yeah, uh, one of them is going to sound very familiar to Zach. Um, so the three basic themes of Orfe are, one, the successive deaths through which the poet must pass before he becomes uh, changed into himself at last by eternity. That was a lot of wordiness there. I don't, I don't even know what all that meant. Yeah. Uh, number two, the theme of immortality, the person who represents Orphe's death sacrifices herself and abolishes herself to make the poet immortal. And Zach, you're, you're one that you brought up already, mirrors, we watch ourselves grow old in mirrors, they bring us closer to death. So, oh wow, now I feel a little pretentious figuring that you're out. Right on the, you're right on the money. With your <laughs> I don't know what those first mirrors. two meant, that's the only one I can um, <laughs> Yeah, the first two kind of speak as to why I'm finding John Cocteau to be a very, very insufferable person. Um, he, and that is and so the, opposite, you know, just to go back to Lynch, like, I think uh, Eraserhead's my most uh, spiritual film. Elaborate on that. No. No. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I feel like I feel like Cocteau really wants everyone to know how smart he is yeah. and yeah. how how much you know how much you know he thinks poets are like the most important people in the world and how their work should be immortalized and they should be immortalized through their work and you know yeah like that's fine but let their work speak for themselves. Like, I can't tell you a single Jean Cocteau poem. I can tell you one of his books, L'Enf and Terribles, and it's only because they made a film of it. Some other filmmaker made a film, but that's the only reason I know it exists. So, like, for all this talk of poets being immortal, can't tell you any of his poems. I can only tell you one of his books, whereas I can name four or five of his films. So, um, And yeah. Picasso's in the Testament, who probably yes, has a yeah. lot more immortality than Cocteau has in that sense. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. I just, I just don't, I'm just not feeling Cocteau. I just don't, I just, yeah, he's just the kind of person, if I, if he was at a party, 
he'd be in the corner just talking about himself to a bunch of women and I was just like hating him so much from across the room. <laughs> I'm like, just look at that asshole. And I say this, I say talking to a bunch of women ironically actually because he was gay. Um, but, <laughs> <laughs> you know you know what I mean. Um, he's, he's, uh, it's just, he just seems like that kind of person, that kind of person that I would just avoid at all costs at a party. Yeah, I don't feel like he'd be a fun person to talk to at all, man. Like, <laughs> no. no. Would not be my choice of filmmaker to pick. So this is this is the interesting thing because I, you know, I guess Beauty and the Beast, he was kind of protected through a story being written for him. So he got to basically be a visual artist uh and and explore, you know, use that side of himself and then tell a story that was already written. I almost wish he did more of that because I agree with the more I think about him and I saw these, I saw all the films twice purely based on the visuals. Um, they got less and less fun <laughs> as they went along. This one was okay to sit through twice. Um, we'll talk about Testament. I did not enjoy it the second time, but I think that, he, you know, when he has some protection from somebody else's story or when he's co-writing with somebody who's a good writer, the things that he does well are able to uh, pop out. Um, are you but, saying he's the Rob Zombie of that era? Is that what it is? Uh, that's exactly where I was playing. Wait, what's <laughs> wrong with Rob Zombie though? Uh, um, I, that one of my, Devil's Rejects is one of my favorite horror movies. Oh, I love Devil's Rejects. No, he just it reminds me of the same criticism I have. Has a great visual line for things. Has some pretty solid ideas. But my God, please get a co-writer. Oh, okay, 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 okay. <laughs> but, yeah, dialogue is not Rob Zombie's strength for sure. Um, but. Yeah, I don't know. So Orpheus to me, I think um, there's not that much to say about it from the sense of like, you know, I I think it's interesting the way he explores mirrors. My favorite parts of the movie were where he was in the mirror world or sort of like going in to see death. Um, I think that was the most some of the most creative visuals. Uh, I have no idea how he did. Do you all have any idea how he did? the scene where it's basically him and his guide walking in the, and, and there's like a strong wind blowing at them. And they're sort of like grabbing onto the building and being pulled along the building. Um, but yeah, it all- I assume it's, it's forced perspective. I assume, you know, they were, maybe they were crawling or, or something. And, yeah. And cause they kind of go down, they kind of slide down the other side of the building, like a slide. Exactly. So I, I feel like it's kind of like the camera was like above them shooting directly down and they were kind of crawling to make it look like they were walking. Yeah, I, I assume it's some kind of forced perspective like that. Very creative. Like I, I will absolutely say, you know, this film is, this is something that I remembered when we talked about you choosing this film. I, I remembered not overly caring about the narrative or whatever but the film is very creative i love how he used water for the mirror uh, and stuff yeah. like that very very creative film the effects are fantastic I, I will absolutely say that if you like really cool practical effects another reason to watch this film is it's it's chock full of them and um, so i can absolutely put my hands up and say yeah for sure the effects are great he should have been a special effects artist he would have had a great career yeah, yeah. I mean, the guy that did Action USA was a stuntman, one of the very prolific stuntmen, and he was given a budget to go make a movie, and he made Action USA. So sometimes, <laughs> sometimes it works. <laughs> um, I, I didn't actually, that is a little off topic. I didn't know Action USA was directed by a stunt guy. That's awesome. That's kind of like what John Wick's become, essentially. It's all yeah, stuntmen yeah, yeah. directing. Exactly. Yeah. John Wick is, is Action USA on a higher budget. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, 
I, I hate to kind of, you know, I, I, there, there's probably a lot to dissect from this movie if you want to, but I'm kind of with y'all. Like, I don't really like the themes that he's dissecting or that he's exploring in the movie. Like the idea that, you know, this idea that a poet has to go through these, these multiple deaths. Um, I think that you could say the same thing in any profession. So like, I don't think that's exclusive to poetry. So like I'm in tech sales and I'm constantly going through many deaths because I lose a deal or because I'm wrong about something or because I make a mistake or I set, submit a contract that has something that's, that, that uh, makes us, uh, what's the word, uh, liable for something that we don't want to be liable for. Like you, you, you go through these little mini deaths, uh, I think in any job, right? In anything in life, in relationships, there's certainly, y'all are all in relationships. There's mistakes you make. There's little times where you have to die to yourself in order to, to compromise and make it work. So I don't think it's exclusive to poetry. Um, it, it probably feels more, I've heard this about stand-up comics and I'm, I'm gonna assume this is true for poets as well. It's like the most raw form of like, yeah, like, like you're putting yourself out there and people judge you. So maybe it's, you know, a little bit more uh, raw in that sense. Maybe it hurts more when people don't respond well. Um, but I, I, I don't know that I, I buy in that it's something that poets have over the rest of us. It's certainly like I can kind of get it. It's it can be nerve wracking. Like I've I've done poetry, I've written poetry, and I've had to go and stand up and, and read it to crowds and stuff. And yeah, it can feel like you're kind of putting yourself out there, um, kind of showing your emotions on your sleeve. Especially maybe I don't know, this maybe more so as a man or something, because we're kind of ingrained in sort of you know masculinity and toxic masculinity and all that kind of stuff. It's not something that you're supposed to do. Um, or at least that's what you know they're told kind of growing up but um yeah like i can kind of see that um i i, I don't think it's an excuse to be insufferable though um, <laughs> so yeah and i imagine they had their version of like a locker room right like boy like all the poets they got together and would like talk about how difficult it is to be a poet so this is I, i'm a, i'm extrapolating a lot here but I imagine that what we see on the screen for Blood of a Poet and for Orpheus is an outpouring of the conversations that he's having with his friends that are also artists, right? And there, he's probably, for every Luis Bunuel that he knows, there's probably 20 that he knows that are striving and haven't made it yet. And so it's almost like, um, uh, it's almost like a part of the, the, the language or the culture to talk about the suffering that goes into it, right? I think for me, you know, when I think of, artists or filmmakers whoever that I like I tend to find myself gravitating towards very down-to-earth ones guys yeah. you know anyone who just seems like they're not putting themselves as so self-important like I love art I, I watch movies I don't think it's all that serious um at least not as serious as he thinks it is and I, I think that you know you bring up the point like you know we're kind of extrapolating like who he is as a person and stuff from this and usually I'd kind of be like, man, maybe we shouldn't do it. It's just a movie. But at the same time, this movie's all, all these movies are just so much about him. Yeah, exactly. And it's like, how can you not? That's the only thing to talk about is him as a person <laughs> and how he is. Well, in Testament, it literally starts off by saying, this movie is a striptease and I'm bearing my, my soul to you over the next 20, 80 minutes. So well, he did that for two hours before that too. So <laughs> I mean, it wasn't anything new by the time I got there. Yeah, exactly. Um, Maybe that's the thing about watching these films so close together, though, because what there was like thirty years between all three of them, 
Yeah. Um, like there was 10 years between Orpheus and Testament, 20 years between Blood of the Poet and Orpheus. So, yeah. you know, maybe we're kind of being harsh to give out that he was saying the same thing over and over again because he's like well you guys would have forgot by then it's not like <laughs> it's not like a criterion channel existed in 1950 it's not like i mean that's, that's definitely true <laughs> yeah so that's that's maybe not to be too harsh about him uh saying the same thing <laughs> because uh, we the people of france from 1930 to 1960 didn't have the same luxuries that we do now <laughs> <laughs> I'm I'm fine if y'all want to jump into testament. I don't really have anything else to say on this one. Um, the, I think in a, in a weird way, there's a lot to say on testament um, uh, for me. But yeah, I, there's not. I don't. I can't really think of anything else that we would need to cover. I guess you know the only thing we didn't do is just quickly on the plot. I mean, essentially, we meet. So the movie. The movie starts with Orpheus, who's just very human. He's just a sort of like a party, outside party, right? And there's a guy who's being obnoxious, and he runs into the street and gets hit by a car. And the car picks him up, and the woman who, who is a passenger in the car forces Orpheus, well, not forces, but like basically pleads to come with her. It wasn't, right? it wasn't the car to knock him down, it was the motorcyclists. Oh, okay, okay. She kind of followed and picked them up. So it's almost like it was pre-planned because obviously it's the same motorcyclist that then follow her around for the rest of the film. Yeah. One yeah, thing yeah. I will say just be before he gets hit as the fight, before the fight happens, is the part I was talking about that really speaks to the insufferability of how some poets get when they're successful, about how there's a magazine of the poet's latest work and all the pages are blank. Um, that <laughs> I feel like that is Cocteau kind of saying, maybe being a bit self-aware or maybe he didn't think he was as insufferable as he is and um, saying you know when some poets make it they think they can just put out any old shit and people will buy it so this dude literally put out a, a magazine of blank pages and called it poems um so I, I found that i thought that was funny maybe he's trying to have a little humor by then i mean he's also later in his life by then but um so then when he goes with her uh, the the guy dies. I think he dies on the scene of the accident, right? Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. He dies yeah. right there in that man. And so he and and in the, he's in the car with her. He's like, "What are you doing?" She's dead. She's like, "Leave me to my business. Just just come with me." And then basically, the guy uh, is sort of reawakens and and he starts to serve her. And we find out that she's death, right? And that night impacts him a lot, uh, Orpheus a lot, and he's not the same. And then the rest of the movie is kind of this battle between his earthly life and his ties to his wife, who he famously loves, like historically, you know, one of the most famous loves. Um, but he treats her like shit in this film. <laughs> I, that's the one thing I didn't understand. Yeah, like he was, I guess we, we catch him in a moment where he met death and was sort of infatuated with it. But the, the love of, of your DC never came through. No, like literally at no point during the film, like even like it gets to the point like where he's in the underworld, which is a cool scene. I like the sequence of traveling there. Like we already touched on, you know, the part where they're sort of going by this building and they're probably crawling just how it was filmed. Um, but I liked all of that. It kind of reminded me of, of the zone in Stalker, um, oh. Tarkovsky, just yeah. the way it was mm -hmm. kind of put together. Um, but when they're there and like he bargains for Eurydice's life and all this stuff and I'm like wasn't he just like kissing death like two minutes ago why does he suddenly care so much 
yeah. it just it yeah it felt like a plot point that it felt like Cocteau kind of forgot he was making an Orpheus film for a minute. He was like, "Ah, oh, shit, hold on. I need to bring Eurydice back. Um, <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, it, it kind of points to maybe his um, his falling down from a, a narrative, just a writing narrative, um, as opposed to like writing surrealistic themes, all this kind of stuff. It definitely shown as maybe not as good as that. Um, so I found that funny. Um, but yeah, the plot, I think it's fine for the most part. Um, it's this is the second Orpheus film that we've had to watch either as part of the podcast or as part of the film club because like super early in the film club we watched Black Orpheus, a yeah. Brazilian movie, um, which tells the exact same story in contemporary Rio de Janeiro. Um, yeah. This is the second Orpheus film, which and in also terms, made by a French guy. What? Also, also made by a French dude. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. Um, like if we're talking about purely pure adaptations of the Orpheus story like Black Orpheus has this one beat I don't particularly like Black Orpheus either um, but if we're talking about pure interpret or pure adaptations of the myth of Orpheus that's probably the better of the two um, but I think in terms of filmmaking point of view they're both pretty even Steven for me um, they both have their negative points they both have their positive points yeah so the real question then is if this is a 4K limited edition steelbook, Zach, are you buying it? No, absolutely <laughs> not. <laughs> I don't need it that bad. Well, well I'll take that back. It's got pretty cool artwork, then maybe. Yeah, I think I think it would be cool in 4K though. Um, <laughs> like if it's a really nice print. Yeah. Yeah. Criterion, start making steels. <laughs> yeah, I was. If they were ever going to do it, they should have done it for Zatoichi the, with like the Japanese steel. That would have been nice, but um, anyways, yeah, I think maybe I, if they eventually get the rights to Kill Bill, they'll do it with Hattori Hanzo Steel. There's he has ten movies, right? That's kind of what he's famous for. Like he, he's he has ten movies. I mean, not famous for, but like that oh, that's what he's always said, isn't he? He's going to make ten and call it. Yeah, and he's at nine right now because so, Kill Bill he counts as one. Film. He counts as one. Yeah, the whole bloody affair. So. so then, whatever he does next, in theory, is his last. That's what he's always said, that he would step away. And I think he said he wants to be a novelist. Sure. I um, mean, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I was just thinking if Arrow was probably the most likely to do that, right? If there's ever someone's going to do all of Tarantino's films, it's probably not Criterion, right? Yeah. Well, I don't, I don't think any, I don't think any uh, sort of boutique label will will ever be able to get the rights to his films so they make enough money on their own. Well, I said this, I, I've said this for years, but now we have Wally coming, which I don't think anyone expected a Pixar movie. I don't ex anyone expected Pixar to license out their films because they do their own steelbooks and everything. Sure, sure, sure. Um, so like, that was a surprise. Um, so I think maybe I th maybe anything's, anything's available now, um, especially Criterion. It seems like they're at a point now where they're, they're very, very popular. Um, probably popular. Um, they're getting a bit. It's getting a bit annoying some aspects of the fan base. Um, but yeah, I think they could probably go out and get anything they wanted now. And I think they did the laser disc of Pulp Fiction. Maybe I'm misremembering, but I seem that that was one of their laser discs. They probably did, but I, laser dick was a uh, laser dick. <laughs> <laughs> laser disc was such a niche format that they could yeah. get the rights to any film they wanted because no studio was going to put the effort into into doing it themselves whereas with dvd it's so much cheaper 
That's um, true. If you think you can make any kind of a profit on your DVD, you're just going to keep it yourself. Whereas Laserdisc disc is very niche. Um, so that's why I think Criterion were able to put out so much hugely famous films on Laserdisc just because the studios who owned them just didn't see the point. They tried. They tried too, right? They put out The Rock and they put out Robocop and Armageddon. I think they tried early on. I wonder if those didn't make enough money for them. I think it's yeah. just, you know, trying to find your identity. Like, they're like, or right. do we really want to be fighting to license these type of movies or do we want to, hey, these movies are cheap and they happen to be art house films and right. your identity. Right. I suppose well, Criterion always stemmed from, from Janus and Janus were always the distributor of art house films in the yeah. US anyway. So, you know, it was always going to skew that way. It was always going to be sort of more facing art house the Robocops and the Armageddons and the This Is Final Taps of the earlier days are probably like, you know, to Wes Anderson and the Netflix and Amazon mm-hmm. films that they put out now. They just, they're, they're there just to kind of make up for the money they'll lose by putting out some obscure film that won't be as popular or won't sell as much. It's just kind of to balance the books. Hence why we haven't got a Blu-ray of this trilogy yet. Yeah, probably. Because <laughs> um, there's definitely there's definitely a print available for definitely for Orpheus because I have the BFI Blu-ray for it. Um, they put out the Blu-ray for Orpheus. That's the confusing thing, not the other two. Oh, did I get they? It. Okay, well, I'd say there's just a. I, I would have to assume nobody's nobody's remastered it. Criterion don't want to put the money up to remaster it because yeah. um, they rarely do that anyway. They kind of rely on other people exactly. to remaster yeah. it these yeah, yeah, days. Yeah. So. Yeah, we kind of did a collection corner. Yeah, we kind of did. That will do. That will serve as your collection corner uh, <laughs> for this episode. So, away from our Soto weird version of collection corner, um, we're going to talk about the last film of this trilogy, which came out ten years later, uh, nineteen sixty, Testament of Orpheus. Um, we did also watch. There's a there's a short available on the Criterion channel and I assume Chris it's available on the uh, on the box set that you have the other part right. of a trilogy um, it's kind of like a home video is the best way to really put it it's not right. like made with proper film equipment it just sh- like looks like it was shot on like a Super 8 camera or something um, and it's called La Via Santo Suspir which I believe is the name of the house where he made the home video um, so. and it's literally just him painting shit all over the walls in this house and some of the artwork is used in Testament of Orpheus um, La Via Santa Suspir I know it's kind of an inconsequential part of this trilogy because it's just showing how like that how he painted some of the artwork that he used later in Testament but honestly this was my turning point into hating Cocteau as a person because <laughs> I'm like what could it do just like goes to his friend's house and decides that he's important enough to paint shit all over their walls what if his friend didn't like like what if his friend didn't think his art was any good like I assume he asked permission but like if that was my house I'd be like Sean what the fuck are you doing this is my house why are you painting all over my walls and he's like oh but it's so good it's so artful I'm like no fuck off it's like paint over this shit right now it doesn't um, match the rug. Yeah, it really, it actually really annoyed me watching it. I'm like, <laughs> I'm like, if this was me, like, I don't give a shit what kind of a famous artist you are. That would really annoy the crap out of me. And I want to know so, that Chris 
like brought this on us. This was not originally in the plan. And then he gets oh. on Discord and says, hey, by the way, you should watch this short, like, in between the second and third one. Yeah, I, I would probably have an, an entirely different outlook on these three films if I hadn't watched this. Um, it just really it just really made me think how, how insufferable and self-serving and uh, narcissistic, egotistical, whatever kind of synonym you want to throw in there. And what um, year did this come out? Where was this in timeline? What's 52. that? So okay, two so it's two after years Orpheus. after Orpheus. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, the, the turning point for me was looking through his directorial sort of titles. I know you can't judge everything by a title, but he has a movie called 8x8, a chess sonata in eight movements. And I was like, nope. <laughs> 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 Not going to watch that. That I, I think Chris that. decided he didn't like Cock 2, and he's like, hmm, how can I make sure they hate him, too? Let me throw this short in there <laughs> in the last minute. <laughs> it reminds me of, uh, that reminds me of the sub, there's like a subtitle for uh, Vivre Seville, uh, the mm-hmm. Godard film. It's an amazing, beautiful film. Uh, it's one of my favorite Godards. But it's uh, Vivre Seville, film en douze tableau, which is to, to live her life, a film in 12 scenes. Um which it is, it's, it is, it's a tableau, it's, it is 12 different scenes and that's what makes the film, but um, yeah, it's always a bit pretentious when you throw shit like that in, in your title, which is probably why it just goes by V for Savie these days. So just really quick before we move on from pretentious titles, the, the French title of this is probably worth mentioning. I, I'm not going to try to pronounce French, but it, the translation to English is the Testament of Orpheus or do not ask me why. Yeah, I don't know what that means, but I assume that he's trying to say, like, don't ask me why I'm making this movie. (laughs) I mean, I don't think he gets it. I don't think he gets to say that, though. That's not I don't think he gets he deserves to be allowed to say now. Don't ask me why you've made it. You spent 30 years making films that are some way connected to it. I think we, we, the audience, have have a very much of a right to ask you why you're making this film <laughs> and um, honestly th- that knowing that title sours me because i actually didn't hate this one <laughs> and, <okay. laughs> and that, but it completely like contradicts what i thought the movie was about i thought it was like you know how you ha- you maybe you've been around like a really toxic friend for like years and finally they give you like the smallest amount of apology yeah, 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 and yeah, you're yeah. like thank you it doesn't mean anything but thank you <laughs> now no. i don't even know if that's true that's how I took this as well. Um, I, I don't know what the title means. <laughs> I, I'm just going to read that little letterbox description because I'm like, I'm, I've just read it there and I'm thinking, what? Okay. Uh, outside time and reality, the experiences of a poet. Okay, first sentence. Yeah. The next sentence. The judgment of the young poet, Hertebis and the princess, which is the characters from Orpheus, um, the gypsies, the palace of Pallas Athena, the spear of the goddess which pierces the poet's heart, the, de- the temptation of the sphinx, the flight of Oedipus, and the final assumption. Like, I don't remember any of that. <laughs> you know? um, I don't remember any of that being referenced. Well, I know some. I mean, I know it gets a little meta, but that's about it. <laughs> yeah. Um, I, 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 I had a tough time with this film. It's the second time I've seen it, and I, I must have erased it from my memory because I didn't. I, re- I remember some parts of it. I remembered him standing on the rocks by the sea. I remembered him kind of walking through that set he had uh, through the doors and stuff like that. 
but I forgot most of it. And I'll be honest, I forgot most of it again. Yeah. Um, I really don't get anything from this film at all, other than me never wanting to go on a time machine and, and meet John Cocteau. Um, <laughs> the cast is so good, though. Uh, have you guys like looked at the cast list of this film? Um, like you probably obviously recognize a lot of people. So obviously the main character is Cocteau himself, the poet. Mm-hmm. Um, again, referring to himself as a poet, despite me never hearing of any of his poems. Um, but it has Charles Aznavour, which we know from Shoot the Pianist. It has Bridget Bardot, which we've all, we've just seen in, uh, in Contempt. If you've been mm-hmm. following along with the film club on Reddit, we just literally saw her in Contempt. Obviously, Jean Marais from Orpheus is back in it again. Uh, Yul Brenner. <laughs> you know, Yul Brenner is in this film. Uh, Pablo Picasso, as Zach had already mentioned. Jean-Pierre Lloyd, uh, you know, from The 400 Blows. Uh, he's in it. Like, it's a really good cast. Um, but yeah, I don't give a shit about this film or anything that happens in this film. Um, even, even the creativity that is shown in the first two is not really seen all that much here in terms of like cool effects and stuff. Yeah, I don't know. I just don't see the point of it. I guess this it's, he's calling it, sorry, just to intercut, right? So it's called, he's called this film, you know, the testament of Orpheus, right? So I don't know what the actual definition of a testament is. I, I know, obviously, from a, you know, from a, a Bible kind of point of view, like testament is kind of like a tone, like kind of your point of view of events, you know, that kind of thing. Um, I don't get why this is a testament of Orpheus. What is, I don't really see what Orpheus has to do, but I know a couple of characters that were in Orpheus show up and they have a kind of trial of the poet. Um, I, I, I really, yeah, I, I really need someone to tell me what, what, the, what the actual point of this film is. So this is really going to make you all mad. Guess where this is on the They Shoot Pictures list. (laughs) No, don't. Probably If it's in the top 1,000, I'm going to be kind of pissed. It's probably in the top 300, I'd say. No, no. Luckily, it's not that high. It's But to me, it's still way too high. So it's 1,465. Yeah, it shouldn't be anywhere close to that. I can live with it because like, I'm sure there is probably arty farty people out there who love this film. What uh, what is, what surrounds it? I'm curious. Yes, oh. please. I, yeah, I'm, I'm also, I'm very, I, I don't want another Friday the 13th situation uh, <laughs> like last time. So um, just a little bit above it is Fallen Angels from Wong Kar Wai. That's a disgrace. <laughs> There's no way these film, two films should be anywhere touching different, t- touching distance. To one. The fact that that's not even in the top 1,000 is a disgrace. I have to imagine that Fallen Angels is going to keep moving up. That movie just is so beautiful. But anyways, yeah. Um, uh, the original Battle Royale. Um, Bull Durham. <laughs> I haven't seen that. Um, that. I'm sure Zach's seen it. That's like a, this is one of those movies you almost have to see as an American growing up in the 90s or like early 2000s. What's the, what's the, what, the second one? The, Bull, what, Durham, what? Bull Durham, the baseball with Kevin Costner. I've never seen it. Okay, okay. Yeah, yeah, I, um, I don't really care for baseball. That's fair. That's fair. Uh, it's just above a fistful of dynamite. Um, that's fair. That movie's not great. <laughs> Mr. Arkin from uh, uh, Orson Welles, Hugo from Scorsese, 
uh, Empire of the Sun from Spielberg, Bad Sleepwell from Kurosawa. So the move, this list really is like all over the place. Yeah. Um, just above Team America, World Police. <laughs> now that's a disgrace. It, Fuck, yeah. World Police should be ahead. Yeah. <laughs> the, I, I, well, I don't want to go too off topic. I wouldn't be surprised if Team America is gets a Criterion release at some point. Just because of the cultural impact it had, like that movie, when that came out, that was just, that was like a, I don't know. I was, I probably saw it four times in the theaters and I've, I've never done that. Like, Give I'm me not, a Parker and Stone collection. I will watch it. Between that and Testament of Orpheus, only one of these films has a graphic puppet sex scene. So, <laughs> right? Yeah. Gotta put Bride of Chucky in there next. <laughs> um, yeah. So, okay, uh, Testament of Orpheus is ranked too high. Here's what I kind of thought. So, um, Fellini made uh, a movie called Ginger and Fred that was very much a reflection of him kind of looking back on his career. And then he also made, um, I'll remember the name here in a moment, but he made, he made another movie, which is very much like a reflection. Jodorowsky made two movies at the end of his career, which were the summation of his life. I think you'll probably see where I'm going with this. Kurosawa made Madadeo, which is about an elderly man looking back at his life and being celebrated. I think that there's this, this as directors get older, you know, Woody Allen's done it to a certain extent in some of his films, although he's not a very self-reflective person, I think, or he is in strange ways, but, but he hasn't made like that one movie about an older person, but it shows up in his movies. I think there's this, this, this moment where artists feel like they, they almost need to look back and sort of, you know, if, if you're able to write, if most people just make movies about themselves on some level, what is that, the, the theory you always talk about, Zach, the, um, where the, all, the only thing you can write about is yourself, like everything is autobiographical? Yeah, I mean, I think there's, there's truth to that. Yeah, so I think this movie fits in with that theory well. Like he's an elderly man um, looking back on his life, kind of making a public apology a little bit, I think in his own way, he still is a pretentious person, but I think he's a little bit more humble now. Um, I think his, uh, you know, there's that scene where he's on trial and he has to answer for his crimes. The first crime is being guilty of everything. Um, and then the second is basically like stealing, stealing time and stealing uh, this, this the, the, when he was like jumping through time and space. He was stealing time, my time. <laughs> exactly <laughs> so I think and, and then he has a, a comment early on in the movie where he says um, that you know the, the, the artist knows more than the scientist because there's a comment the scientists make where it's like how did you jump through time and he's like well a poet knows these things right and then he's like well I guess you must know more than scientists, right? And I think, I don't think he means that seriously. I think he's meaning that as like a joke or like a, like a reflection of how arrogant poets are. So there's an element there where I'm gonna be a little bit forgiving to him because this is basically just like an elderly man trying to kind of almost like apologize or, or make a movie that sums up his life, the good and the bad. And, and he's trying to measure his own life. The problem I have with it is that it's a very poorly made movie. I didn't like it. <laughs> um, this, it was, I, I didn't like the set design. I didn't like the way that it was written, the way that it was constructed. Um, I think it was too basic for what it was trying to do. Maybe he had a limited budget he was working with, but it was all on that. Most of it was all around that one soundstage, right? With a few exceptions. They just like re, 
kind of designed that soundstage in different ways. Um, I think the, the characters, the acting was very dry. Maybe that was on purpose, but I felt it more this time. Like they were, it was like, a, it was like sitting through a lecture in class as opposed to watching a movie. And um, I, I didn't like it. Yeah, it was, it was too long for me as well. Too long. Which is amazing because I think it's the second shortest. It's like 80 minutes. Yeah, it's only 80 minutes. That's too long for what this kind of film is. So that's the thing. That's the problem. Uh, just, yeah, just, just too long for, for what you need to be saying. I, yeah, exactly. You could have said the same thing a lot more efficiently. Like it goes back to that. I always have that joke where I say that if your film is in three digits, then you either don't know what to say or you're saying too much. Um, it's just my joke about how I don't like long films. Obviously, yeah, yeah. It's not, that's not true. Um, but I feel like with any kind of surrealistic work, unless you're telling a narrative that has a straight beginning, middle and end, I don't really see why you need more than an hour to tell that story. So it's not even really a story. Um, it just, yeah. It, again, I, I see what, where you're coming from, Chris, and maybe some of this stuff is very um what's the word um there's a word uh self-conscious uh he's very some of the things he's talking about in regards to artistry and the immortality of poets and you know the self-serving nature of poetry and everything that you know maybe it can be seen as self-conscious or like a joke or self-referential or yeah. you know, whatever sort of meta context sort of postmodern context you want to put it in I feel like he could have said that in half the amount of time that he did. So obviously that's still, he's still guilty of that himself, even though he wants to put himself on a trial in the film to kind of make fun of things he's done in the past. He's still doing it all over again. He hasn't really learned. Um, clearly he hasn't really learned, you know, to have maybe it be a bit more humble um, with his, with his artistry or with his, what he perceives as being great artistry that he's created. Yeah. Um, I don't think he has a humble bone in his body. Adam, I think you would really appreciate the quote. I always like this one is I would have written a shorter letter if I had had the time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Which is ironic since he waited like 10 years between all these movies. So he had plenty of time. That was more time. To put it in a modern context, you know, when you go to a meeting that's an hour long, you say that could have been an email. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <exactly>. <laughs> <laughs> in today's context. Yeah. I, I use that quote all the time. By the way. It's Mark Twain, right, Zach? They, it, it's Mark Twain is one that they believe said it. It's like several different writers mm -hmm. that they've contributed it to, and they're not really sure who was the first. But it's a pretty similar idea, like Adam just said. Like today, we have the you could have sent that in an email. <laughs> totally. totally, there's that good joke in the office where it's like, is something text worthy or not? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> anyway, um, there's one more thing I wanted to quickly add. Um, shoot, I might have just lost it now talking about the office. Um, uh, oh, 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 yeah. Here's what here, here's like the summary for me that of, of why I guess it didn't work. Blood of a Poet had a lot of very innovative visual stuff in it. Orpheus had a lot of very innovative visual stuff in it that was new, like innovative in the sense of like it hadn't I hadn't seen it before. I hadn't seen like you know three minute takes that were all in reverse and where they're just walking slowly or whatever. So like, there's all this innovation that happened in those first two movies to kind of keep me engaged. And then he did the short film, which had that really innovative way that like basically a flower was constructed, but 
it was deconstructed again just using reverse sort of filming or like filming it and then showing it in reverse um this movie it didn't have anything innovative in it so it was a rehashing of his old visual techniques that he's already done and it was reflective self-reflective i guess uh looking back um and it was a lot of making an argument for or against the decisions he's made um and it just it lacked anything interesting and new uh, and, and i just I, I never got around to it like when i first saw it i was like okay all right like i didn't quite get it in the sense of i didn't quite enjoy it but i've enjoyed these other two films more the second time through so let me see in the second time through like nope didn't like it it just boring yeah it's kind of it's kind of weird like when you consider it's 10 years after orpheus so I think with Orpheus and to probably a greater extent Beauty and the Beast, you could watch those films and argue that Sean Cocteau is a good filmmaker. I might not agree with you, but I'm sure there's plenty of people who could make the argument. Mm-hmm. But with Testament of Orpheus, it's like he regressed. Yeah. Uh, as a you know, as a filmmaker. And you know, whether that's just with, you know, just with age or you know, just a different period of his life where he just lacked creative, you know, lacked maybe some creative juices. Maybe he didn't have, like he spoke about how it all mainly takes place in sort of one big warehouse set. Maybe he didn't have the backing that he wanted financially. Although I'd have to maybe say that's probably not true considering the cast of characters he was able to put together and the, the acting power he was able to put in the very short scenes. He was able to convince post 400 blows, you know, um, Jean-Pierre Lloyd to show up in a 30 second segment. So, you know, Maybe or you know, or maybe all these actors decided, oh, Jean Cocteau isn't the last sort of part of his life. He's a very influential French filmmaker yeah. from the last 20 years. Let's go do him a solid and do a cameo in this film for him. So maybe there's that aspect as well. All I know is that after these four films and Beauty and the Beast, which oh, I get shit on, but I don't even really like Beauty and the Beast. And I know that that's very beloved by, you know, and just people whose opinions I respect on film that do like that film a lot. Um but I particularly didn't give a shit about it when I watched it. Um, I, I could not sit here and tell you guys today that I think Jean Cocteau is one of the great filmmakers. I think he's a very creative person and he has a really, he has a great eye for creativity and he has a, and this probably comes from not coming from a film background. He has an eye for doing things differently and having ideas or things that have never been done before and how they can be done on film. So especially that we saw in our in Orpheus and in Blood of a Poet. Um, but I, I, I cannot sit here and say to the audience, our listeners, that I think Jean Cocteau is a, is a great filmmaker because I don't think he is. I think he's a very creative person, but he just, he, he lacks so much in so many key areas. And I, I don't honestly see why these films are so highly lauded as they are. Um, I really, I really just don't, don't get them. I think out of the three, Orpheus is definitely my favorite, but you know, I rate it four stars purely because of some of the creative choices and the fact that it has a bit of a narrative. Um, I don't think it's any better than any other four star film that I've seen. Um, so yeah, that's that's kind of my final take on the three films and, and Cocteau himself. I, I guess the summation for me is it's to me it's like the Dark Knight trilogy. The first and the third one kind of go together because of the whole like League of Shadows thing. 
But then you have the second one that has basically nothing to do with that, but it's the better movie. So you just kind of accept it. <laughs> I wasn't expecting Chris Nolan to put on this episode. <laughs> Chris Nolan always shows up. Oh, that's fantastic. Thank you for that, Zach. I mean, <laughs> we should make that theme going forward to try and work Nolan in some way or another to any film we watch. Yeah, that and, you know, our episode about Spirited Away. Which yes. listeners should listen. Go, go check out our Spirited Away episode. episode. Great episode. Our best, I think. Cool. So I hope you enjoyed uh, us shitting on Jean Cocteau for the last, you know, 60 minutes or so. Um, we're going to wrap up, as always, with any other business, just to talk about something that we've watched. And Zach's going to give us a preview for what next, the next sort of talking episode is. I don't know if we have an interview lined up, Chris. You might want to speak on that if we do. Um, but we're, what we're going to talk about next time the three of us are together is Zach's going to give us a hint on that. Um, I'm going to do my any other business first. Um, I've watched a couple of things since we last spoke. Um, just a, a couple of highlights would be uh, I watched a, a Sam Fuller film. It's on the Criterion channel called The Steel Helmet. I feel like I needed something to uh, wash down House of Bamboo, which we watched for the film club recently, which I didn't yeah, yeah, yeah. really care about. Yeah. Uh, Steel, the Steel Helmet's awesome. I don't know if you've seen that, that one, Chris. I know you're a Sam Fuller fan as well. It's on the channel. It's only like 80-something minutes. Uh, it's set in the Korean War. It's a really good film. Okay. Uh, recommended. I enjoyed it. Um, Netflix has a, a film out called Do Revenge um, with uh, Maya Hawke, um, obviously Ethan Hawke and Uma Thurman's daughter, and one of the people from Riverdale whose name I can't remember. Um, it's okay. It's probably better than what it should have been. It's, it's way too long for what it is. It's kind of like a teen revenge comedy, kind of like Heather's mixed with... Um, yeah, I can't really. Yeah, it's like Heather is mixed with Clueless, and like the basic premise is strangers on a train, and they basically both set out to get revenge on each other's person they want revenge on. Um, yeah, it's it's a bit long for what it is, but like I didn't hate it. It was it was fine. Um, but the highlight for me in the last couple of weeks since we last spoke um, this is going to be a very very shocking. Take our listeners might revolt. You guys might revolve. It's probably the hottest take I'll ever have on this podcast. But like them Godfather movies are pretty good. Um, <laughs> they're they're good movies. Uh, I, I I saw the first Godfather film like uh, ten or eleven years ago, and I, I I kind of vaguely remembered bits and pieces, various scenes and stuff like that. But Jesus Christ, it's a good movie. I didn't like part two as much. I know that's actually pretty, that's actually more of a controversial take because I know a lot of people like say two is better. I think one's better too. I think one's just a better movie. Uh, yeah, I just think it's a better put together film. Like two is still like better than like 90% of all films. Yeah. Um, but it's not as good as one. Um, I just don't think it's as fluid. I don't really, the whole prequel, sequel jumping. It's like Coppola like made two films and thought, ah, shit, I can't put out two. Let's just kind of put them into one. And <laughs> um, there wasn't much thematic mirroring or anything. Usually, when you have these films that jump between timelines, they like try and mirror them in some way. And I kind of see maybe because it's like Vito's rise and Michael's fall that it's kind of like a mirroring. But I feel like they just jump very in random spots. I don't think they work together as fluidly as I would have liked them to. Yeah, it's separate. I, th I agree with you a lot of that. And I think it's, 
I think a lot of it's a commentary because I think it's just more common like when you're really into the films in the sense that Michael gets a lot of as a character like oh well he didn't do as great as his father did and of course that's a burden that's on him a long time when in all honesty he had a much harder rise to power than his father did who hmm. killed like one dude <laughs> and uh, kind of <laughs> got everything he wanted where Michael had to do a whole lot to get what he wanted. Yeah I, I felt as well where it's like where it shows Vito rising it's kind of like how easy the American dream was in that era and Michael's fall is kind of showing what the actual American dream is like the like in that time you know coming in sort of a few years down the line where everybody was chasing the American dream how easy it was to kind of fall off your perch um so yeah look obviously both great films um Godfather 1 is better than Godfather 2 you've heard it here first um Chris, what about you? Uh, yeah, we can talk about this on a different episode. Godfather's okay. Um, <laughs> oh, that's a, now that's the hot take. Yeah, that is the hot. It's the hottest take since Vertigo is okay. It's all right. <laughs> um, not better than Testament of Orpheus. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, I'll just go quickly because I um, <clears throat> saw a bunch of movies on a plane because we were we were traveling. Um, I think the Northman is good, but I was amazed at how nerdy it was. Like, I'm amazed that they were able to make that movie. It's like, it's like, hey, you know, I, I imagine the pitch was like, let's remake, Thor is popular right now. So let's take a deep dive into Norse mythology, but we're going to go deep and we're going to like speak the language and we're going to like, you know, and it's going to be real dark and moody. Um, I think it's a, it's a well-made movie. I was just surprised at how little they tried to make it sort of like western I, I oh guess. and you should have seen how the like eggers wanted them to speak old norse like he was like wanting that and the studio said absolutely not yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's the cool thing with eggers to be fair like he he like he he dives deep uh mm -hmm. like the lighthouse as well with the way like the characters talk in the lighthouse and stuff is, is the exact same i actually haven't seen the northman um but i'm not surprised when you tell me that it, it kind of really delves deep into the you know, into the mythology and the language and all that kind of it, stuff. After after the lighthouse and the witch, I'm not surprised by that. That's cool. It really made me want to see the witch. Um, oh, dude, you need to. Uh, yeah, yeah, witch yeah. yeah. I like folk horror anyway, so maybe I'll try to see it in October. But um, I think it's the way that he just assumes that the audience understands what's happening, which is, is I always find impressive. Like they don't explain things; they just dig into like the names of the the gods and the goddesses and the you know languages and stuff. Um, the other one is, is Jurassic World Dominion, Jurassic Park Dominion or whatever. That movie is, that movie rules. Thank you. Oh my God. Thank you. <laughs> I think you guys are the only two people on Earth. I wrote a super positive film. review of that movie. <laughs> yeah, no, I had that in mind. Go ahead. What are you all saying? No, I was just excited because I wrote a super positive review on the website and I was like, I'm the only person who feels this way besides my girlfriend who's obsessed with Jurassic Park. No, <laughs> that movie, like, that movie's going to get revisited, I think. That movie rules. Like, first of all, it's like, what is it, two and a half hours or whatever, two hours? Yeah. And it has like 90 minutes of dinosaurs. Like, it really delivers on the dinosaur promise. Um, It's got really good kills. Like, it's it's a... It's the biggest budget like B movie I've ever seen. Like it's like a the whole premise is just a joke. It's so bizarre, but like it's I I was just watching. It's like 
are they really gonna like go down that path with the script? Like, is that <laughs> you know with the whole? Like, I don't want to spoil anything, but like the way that the 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 little girl, like like who she is and the way that she was created and and everything, I was just like, this is like straight out of a Roger Corman movie or something. Like, this is bananas. And you know, I'm glad you bring that up because like a lot of people talk about how stupid like these movies are, and they are to an extent. But I was like. I think like people talk about like Crichton was such a a, a big sci-fi guy. It's like Crichton was a B a pulp writer. He mm. was a really talented pulp writer, but mm-hmm. at the end of the day, that's what he wrote. Like he wrote ideas that were cool to him. <laughs> it's yeah. like, you know, he liked the action, he liked action scenes, he liked stuff like that. He was just good at writing characters and making you like them. Yeah, pulpy is a good word. I mean, this is a this is a one of those movies that if it was made for a hundred thousand dollars would be on a lot of like so bad it's good kind of lists, I think. Yeah. <laughs> it's just one of these crazy, like, what is happening right now kind of films. And the it's so cheesy when like the old actors come in. Um, but it's almost like they're aware of what like I, I don't know. I, I just think it's I think it's gonna get revisited as one of the better ones in the franchise. I think it's great. Um and then uh, the final one I'll talk about is Wrath of Man, which it's interesting because I was surprised to see it was a Guy Ritchie movie. Mm-hmm. It's very dark. It's dark and also like it, it's not as hyperactive as Guy Ritchie usually is. It's, it's kind like, of like Revolver, but well-made. That's kind of what I've always thought okay. of it as. Like finally he was able to make Revolver work. Yeah. I don't know if it was... what. I don't know if I'm ready to say it was well. Yeah, no, I'm fine with that. It was well made. Yeah. I think it was interesting to see Statham in a role like this because he pretty much had the same face the whole time, which is is the right way to do it. (laughs) And then they built the movie like around him. So like the scene where he's emotional when his kid dies, not really a spoiler, like the scene where he's emotional when his kid dies, they shook the camera. He didn't have to change his face. They just shook the camera to show that he was emotional. So they, they knew how to work with Statham. Um, uh, yeah, it's a good, like, he's a badass. Like, he's got to go on a big killing revenge kind of streak movie. And, um, you know, it has that heat element to it. So, you know, anybody I know who likes heat, I'm like, watch Wrath of Man. It's not as good as heat, but it's got a lot of that element to it. Yeah, yeah. Great, great movie for a plane. Um, yeah, I'll stop there, I think. That's what I've seen. Oh, you sound like you had a fun plane ride. That's way better than usually what I get on a plane ride. Yeah, international flights are nice. They, they get all the blockbusters and stuff. Um, the only thing is it took me, so it was a 10-hour flight. And it, I think Jurassic Park was the one that was two and a half hours. And it took me four hours to watch it because I was traveling with the five-year-old. So um, yeah. Yeah. That's a good way to keep, make it longer, make it keep going. Exactly, exactly. What about you, Zach? Um, I'll, I'll keep it pretty short. Uh, the only thing I really want to highlight is I went to go see Pearl twice, um, which for anyone a little unaware... Uh, X came out in March of this year, and at the same time, they filmed the prequel to that film, Pearl, which then releases six months later here in September. Uh, And seriously, like, so much credit to Ty West in the ability to basically be away from horror for eight, eight or nine years. And then to come back and have, like, two great movies within six months of each other, like, that is just really fucking cool. Like, that's super awesome. Uh, I look forward to seeing Pearl. I didn't like X as much as everyone else, but I, I liked it. I, but I didn't like love it. I know you were shouting from the rooftops with X. Oh uh, yeah, um, yeah. It's my favorite film of the year so far. Yeah, still. like I liked uh, it. I thought it was a good film. Um, but I, I'm looking forward to Pearl. I, I probably won't get to see it in theaters, so I'll have to wait till it comes to streaming. But X, it didn't take long for X to come to streaming, so I'm assuming Pearl will be the same. 
And I, honestly, Adam, I could actually see you liking Pearl better just because like it takes a lot of that um, Technicolor influence. It, ha- it The best mix I can think of is like Wizard of Oz mixed with whatever happened to Baby Jane. Oh, fantastic. Sounds great. Yeah, like <laughs> it's still got the slash up, but it, they feel so tonally different, but in a very good way. Like I'm so glad it's just not X again. Like yeah, he like did, I, did I, something different with it. Yeah, like I could do without like, I didn't really like X up until the the murder started. You know, <laughs> you know, it's I just didn't really see the you know the point of like having a porn film for the first sixty minutes. Um, so yeah, I, I'm looking forward to Pearl. Though. I'm going to go in with like fresh eyes. I'm not going to look at anything about it. I want to. That's what I did with X. I had no real idea what it was about, um, and I'm glad. So, and then probably sometime next year, of course, they've already announced the third and final part of this trilogy, which is going to be Maxine, which is going to be taking place in the 1980s. So he'll get to do a whole new filming technique for that as well. Just really cool. I just I like Ty West. I was a big fan of House of the Devil and the Innkeepers when he was, you know, kind of yeah, making his way through the horror scene. And I'm just glad to have him back. It's kind of been a nice voice to see. <laughs> Right. What's next for us, Zach? What are we going to be watching? And, and why is it more cocktail films? <laughs> well, I figure we might as well just finish this filmography up, you know? I mean, we've gotten so <laughs> close at this point. But uh, no, I figured I would go the complete other direction. So October um, is, of course, our horror month. Or This will release, I don't know, what is it, like the 12th, Adam, something like that? Like middle of October sometime. Yeah, yeah it'll be sometime in the middle of October. Yeah, so I decided to go with um, some Stephen King because I don't really think you can go wrong with some Stephen King as long as it's um, not the TV movies. Uh, so we're going to first be watching um, John Carpenter's Christine, um, which I'll work out because anyone who's going to go see Halloween Ends apparently takes a lot of influence from Christine, so that'll be fun. And then we'll be watching um, one of the one I believe is probably King's most unappreciated adaption, which is The Night Flyer which is his second time doing a um, vampire story after Salem's Lot. So really cool movie. Um, so yeah, we'll get some Stephen King. It's probably hopefully going to be a little less, uh, why is this guy so pretentious talk? So <laughs> Why is this dude not shutting up about Maine? So <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm looking forward. I haven't seen either. Uh, Christine's obviously one of those films that, Oh, you've never seen Christine. Never wow. seen Christine. I know. Yeah. It's just one of those films that a lot of people have seen and I've never seen it. So me neither. Uh, looking forward to finally seeing Christine. Wait, neither one of y'all have seen Christine. No. That is amazing. Okay. Now I'm excited. I just thought that was going to be a rewatch for everybody. <laughs> no, never seen it. So looking forward to it. I'll probably watch that soon because uh, I think I can probably convince Neve to watch that one. Uh, it's getting into spooky season. So she likes to think that she'll watch horror films when. Really, she just wants to watch Hocus Pocus, but uh, <laughs> I mean that's fun too. <laughs> yeah, that's okay. I don't hate I don't hate Hocus Pocus. I've seen it enough now over the last few years um, <laughs> to not to learn not to hate it. I know the sequel is coming out soon as well, but hey, we're not here to do marketing for Disney, so let's stop talking about that. 